Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. May God add his blessing. So, we're on a journey going through the book of Matthew, focusing on uh, Messiah, and uh, specifically stating it that way because, again, as we talk about Matthew as a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah, and so seeking to keep that mindset as we go through, and clearly there's going to be passages as we go through where that, that concept isn't as rife, isn't as alive within there, and so we don't see it as much. But others, it's going to be very important that we need to understand what the context is. And so as we've been going through um, our study on it, we have considered then um, his lineage and his birth. We've seen the, the details of his birth as well um, as we come came through there. But we then also saw his forerunner, how that... Um, Again, as we talk about in Sunday school, there was 400 years of silence between the prophet Malachi and then the coming of John, who we refer to as John the Immerser, okay, John the Baptist, and he then becomes the next prophet that begins to proclaim God's message. And so John came, and the message that he proclaimed was, remember, repent, change the way you think. Why? Because the kingdom of God is, is at hand, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And the idea, if you remember when we talked about it, it's already here. It has come, okay? The kingdom of the heavens has come. And so he was stating that because he knew that Jesus was already on the earth. What period, what period of spacing is there between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus? Six months. Six months, okay? So they're cousins, only six months difference. John knows that Messiah is already on the earth. He knows it, okay? And that his ministry is only limited because he was here to do what? What did he say when he was asked? Who are you? Good job, Natasha. You're fucking with me, okay? He was here in order to prepare the way of Yahweh and who was then Jesus because that's who, who we was preparing the way for. But he specifically said, I've come to prepare the way of Yahweh. And so, and then he said, there was one coming after me. Sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie. I can't, I can't unloose them. I mean, it, and so this is kind of cool because, again, Jesus is his younger cousin from man's perspective. Does it make sense? But from the kingdom's perspective, he understands exactly who Jesus is. He's the son of God. That when Mary gave birth, she gave birth to God's son. Yeah, I mean, how to God himself. I mean, it's just mind-boggling how that plays out, okay? And so, so he comes, and he, and he proclaims, and then he baptizes Jesus, okay? He immerses Jesus. Jesus, you know, John says, tries to stop him, says, no, I mean, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me to be baptized? This ought not be. And Jesus said what? Does anybody remember? Let it be so for now. Yeah, you're here this morning. Oh, I gotta say. Everybody has a lot I gotta say. Okay, everybody else is laughing, but you're talking. That's good. All right. So yes, let it be so for now. Why? This is yeah. In, in paraphrase, this is what God wants. This fulfills all righteousness. Okay. And so when Jesus first comes, remember he, his, his statement here in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that we're kind of in that little context of, right? He says, "I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to." fulfill the law, okay? And so, 
even his baptism then, in a way, was coming to do what? Fulfilling the law. He was, he was fulfilling the testimonies that were given of Messiah. He, there's this comprehension of the fact that when Jesus came, he was God. But he came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. He was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world knew him not. Okay? So when they looked at him, they didn't look at him and say, Whoa! God on the earth! How cool! And now I'm here for this moment. They looked at him and said, What? He looks like a Jew. He looks like, hey, he looks like Shlomo down the road. Yeah. I mean, there's no difference. He just, he's a Jew. Okay? I don't know what Jesus looked like. I know. You've seen the pictures. His hair was this and all this kind of stuff. His face, he had a beard like, you know, whatever. He had an Anglican nose. Anyway, no, come on. You know, you know, he was a Jew. He was an Arab kind of Jew. Makes sense? If you go over and you look at someone who is a, like a true Jew, not a European Jew. Okay? There's a lot of Jews that are European Jews because of the, the bloodlines being mixed, right? But if you go and you look at like an Arab kind of Jew, that's what Jesus probably would have looked like. It, it kind of gets rid of all the concepts of what we think of Jesus, right? Everyone's Jesus to look like them. I want to look like Jesus. Does that make sense? Everybody wants Jesus to look like them. But God wants us to look like Jesus. You need to think that one through. Okay? That's why I grew the beard. Some of you are in trouble because you can't grow. No, anyways. Um, but for real, okay? And so we continued on then with Jesus then coming. He's being baptized. He was tempted in the wilderness 40 days, right? And um, again, that was part of God's process. But then Jesus came and he began to give his message. And what was the summation of Jesus' message? What did he state? Repent. The same, same exact thing as the forerunner. Repent because the kingdom of God has drawn near. Okay. I'm here. I'm the king. I'm here. This is the message. And then he went and he called the disciples. Follow me and gave him a promise. I will make you fishers of men. Okay? And so we've talked about that. And then he, he then, Matthew then, because Jesus didn't immediately go to the mountain and begin to preach the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew, in his accounting of it, then brings the next thing into this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, as David stated um, when he spoke, I didn't hear totally that, but I, you, I know you had stated you were going to share it, so I assume you did. That this is probably indicative of a message that John, that Jesus, not John, Jesus would have shared other places. We just read about it being here on the Sermon on the Mount. This is a summation, really, of a lot of the things that he taught. Okay, and it probably did happen in this one sitting that Matthew is then recalling and writing down. Not necessarily that it had to happen exactly at the at right after he called Peter and Andrew and James and John. Okay. But this comes into this, this, this time of teaching then. And what we're seeing then is this summation of the teaching of Jesus, his message. You can sum up his message with change the way you think. So what's he doing in the Sermon on the Mount? Telling you how to change the way you think. And so that what we refer to those Beatitudes, I mean, he really hits you right hard right from the beginning, you know, um, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are, if you would, if you don't mind me summing this up, silly, okay? Blessed are those that the world thinks are weak. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? But God calls the what? The weak to confound the strong, right? I mean, that's in a sense what Jesus is stating here. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are those, you know, blessed are you when you were persecuted, right? And you're like, whoa, 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 that doesn't make any sense. No, it does make sense from the kingdom Mentality, And when you finally grab the kingdom mentality, you will be the salt and the light in this world. You will add flavor, and you will be the preservative. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, then what good is it uh, to be thrown on the ground and be trampled on? Did you share the word picture of that one from Roman, Roman times? This, and making the, the, the roads with it? Because salt also what? Kills vegetation. Okay. And so, if it's lost its original purpose, its, its, its intentful purpose, then it's good for nothing else other than being used as weed be gone. Make sense? God didn't call us to be weed be gone. He called us to bring life. To bring zest to things. That's the salt. And then he continues on then in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we began to see, is that, first of all, in this standard, we saw that it was a... Um, a different standard, different worldview. Then we saw it was a higher standard, because that's what Jesus said. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And he said, unless your righteousness, 
Remember? So we talk about, so all righteousness will be fulfilled, right? And so he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, Jewish concept, because we, we look down on Pharisees. We think they're hypocrites and all that kind of stuff. You can say, well, I, I, clearly from my perspective as an as American Gentile, I'm pretty good because I exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees because they were just hypocrites. That's not how it was in that day. That was a big statement what Jesus was making. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends that thought in chapter 6 or chapter 5 with what? Therefore you shall be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The standard, the standard of perfection, the standard of righteousness that we must attain in order to get to heaven by our own merits is the perfection of God and the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus is driving at. That's where we heard all the, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus is bringing it back to the heart standard. Unless your righteousness attains to the level of God on your own merits, by your own works, you haven't got a hope. And so that's why Romans chapter 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the what? Glory, the reputation, the doxa, the glory of God. All, all, how many? All. All. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. We may have some good stuff looking in us at times here and there, but when you consider the standard of goodness being the standard of God, when you consider the standard of righteousness being the righteousness of God, when you consider the standard of perfection being the perfection of God, guess what? You're gone. So what do we as humans like to do? Set up our own standards. Jesus said, change the way you think. Get rid of the standards of man. Go back to the standards of God. Admit the fact that what? You can't do it. Admit the fact that you'll never be able to attain it on your own. Remember that final statement we saw was not a commandment. It was a statement. Almost like a promise. That if you finally change the way you think, you shall be what? perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. And so when Jesus died on the cross, I don't remember this because I was running at the end, the final statement that he makes, now I understand it was probably in Aramaic, but it's translated into Greek for us, and they could have used any term they wanted to. They could have used pleroma, okay? It has been completed. The cup has been full, okay? They didn't use pleroma. They used the word Teleo, in the perfect sense of it, uh, in the perfect, and so I, I did some of this, remember, with the ran run and all that kind of stuff, but the, the, a perfect is, is a past action that has a continuing result. It's important because I love, God chose Hebrew for a reason, God chose Greek for a reason, okay? And we don't get a lot of this in English. It kind of, but all in one word, in one word, not multiple sentences trying to describe something. In one word, you can have an entire thought process. Okay? There's also what's called a pluperfect. I know, this is blowing your brain. I, I didn't learn my English until I learned my Greek. Makes sense? I didn't know any of this stuff. Pluperfect is a past action with a continuing result that ended in the past. Okay? So if you wanted to state something that had a continuing action, it started, had a continuing action, and then it ended, you could use a pluperfect. Not very often in the, in the, in the um, New Testament that it's used, just once or twice. Okay? But the perfect is a past action that has a continuing result, meaning what? Still going. Natasha, man, I, I am so glad you're here. It's still going. It hasn't ended. It's not poo. Get it? It's not through. It's not blue. Anyways, and so Jesus on the cross cries out, Tetelestai. You say, okay, good. He said, Tetelestai. Everybody together, ready? Tetelestai. You can do this. Tetelestai. It's the most important word you'll ever know. Well, other than chesed. But anyways, Tetelestai, okay? Tetelestai is, it is perfected. You know it as? It is finished. Jesus said, you shall be 
telos. You shall be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is telos. When Jesus died on the cross, he used the verb form of that same word, at least in the Greek, telestai. It has been perfected. And so I'm told by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin. For what purpose? For what purpose? You guys tell me. Come on. He who knew no sin became sin. We can memorize this. Come on, guys. Look it up. If you can't tell me, look it up. That, say it again, Brian. Not to make, not make the, he didn't die to make the righteousness of God. Say again. Now look it up. Come on, guys. Look it up. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Somebody tell me and quote it. That we, that not he, but we might become the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of the Pharisees. Not the righteousness of men. But he became my sin. He didn't take on my sin. He became my sin that I might become his righteousness. So we sing the song, his robes for mine. Right? What a wonderful exchange. What a deal. I'll give you my first round draft pick if you give me your seventh round. That doesn't even, that didn't even come close to it. But that's kind of the idea. In baseball, I'll give you my first round for your 32nd round or whatever it is, however they do. I mean, that still doesn't even come close to it. He became my sin that I might become his righteousness? Do you get it? When you come to Christ, when you accept the gift that he's offering you, I mean, it's not just a little bit. It's not even just eternal life. It's his perfection. It's his righteousness. How cool is this? And so if that becomes true, if that becomes true, it begins to become evidenced in your life, right? And so we move into this fact that then this standard is not just, but it's, it's a definitive standard. There's no middle ground. There, there's, there, there's no middle ground. If, if you, when you come here and you begin to comprehend what Jesus has done for you, there, there is no middle ground. I mean, yes, I know the Romans 6 and Romans 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do? I find there's this war that's going on with me. And we love to live in Romans 7 as an excuse. But 1 John chapter 1 says that God is light and in him is just a little bit of darkness. No, it doesn't say that, does it? There's no darkness at all. Therefore, if you would, right? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have koinonia, oneness, fellowship with God, and we continually, that's the concept of the present tense there, if we walk, if we walk in darkness, if we continue to walk in darkness, we have no what? We lie. And we have no fellowship with him. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not the truth. Chapter 2 says, he that says he knows him and doesn't do what he says is a what? Is a liar. I didn't say it. God says it. There's no middle ground. If you can walk in sin, if you can walk in sin, and it doesn't bother you, The Bible says you're a liar. You're lying to yourself. That's why James 1, 22 to 25 says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. For if he is, hears the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks into the mirror. He looks at himself, he goes his way, and straightway he forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his Indeed. There's no middle ground. You're either a doer or you're a hearer. We may mess up, Romans chapter 7, but there is a war then. I love when someone comes to me and says, I'm struggling with sin. Praise God. I know too many people ain't struggling. <laughs> They're enjoying it. 
If you're sinning and it bothers you, that's a good sign. Now, if it's only bothering you that, that your wife doesn't like you and you don't get what you want, then that's probably a bad sign because it's still selfish. But if you're sinning and it bothers you because it's, 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 it's an abomination to God, it's an stench in his nostrils, that's a really good sign. And so he moves into this, this next phase of this, this, this definitive standard by saying there's no middle ground, by, by looking, first of all, at some spiritual aspects, disciplines, and then looking at some practical things. And so we, we said last week, as we went into this, that there were two primary questions that you can ask yourself that really become indicative of where your heart is. And the first question is, is whose applause are you seeking? Whose applause are you seeking? And Jesus uses this in referring to the spiritual disciplines of giving, giving your alms, giving, and praying, and fasting. And, and all these are when, 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 when. Not if, 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 but when, when, when. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. What's the reason you do it? What's the purpose behind you doing it? It's a hard thing, remember? Jesus was just, had just stated, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say unto you, if you think these things, it's what? It's in your heart. He's talking about your heart. And so, now he's still talking about your heart. Why do you really do it? Why do you give? Do you give because you cannot give God and you're waiting for God to bless you? It's still the wrong reason to give. Now, you can know that, but if you're only giving because you want God to what? I'll give you, then it's still all about you, isn't it? Be careful, I'm doing this for my rewards in heaven. <laughs> you have your reward. Okay? And so the idea, I mean, this is a struggle for me. You know, if, if I'm only doing it for crowns, then it's still all about what? It's still all about me. Okay? I mean, God gives us a little encouragement out there. That's really kind of nice. But if I'm focusing on the crowns, it's still literally all about me. You get it? And, I, I mean, and I'm just being honest. Bob's just like anybody else. I still, you got to, I guess, still struggle. You know, that little selfish, self-centered thing comes in there. And, you know, you're like, ooh, the crowns. Forget the crowns. Think of Jesus, right? So, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Now, if you're not giving and you're not praying and you're not fasting, that instantly tells you what? There's an issue. Okay? All right? So, Jesus takes them as a what? As a given. It's, it's, if there's any kind of relationship, if there's any kind of thought process, then these things are what? These, these, are, these are there. So, so when you give, do you only give so people can see? And so I asked the question about if you're at a church and they're passing an offering plate, and I didn't really get to focus on it a whole lot, but do you feel compelled to put into it? And now I'm not compelled because the offering plate is there and you need to, but other people will see whether you what? Give or you don't give. And so, have you ever seen, um, oh, it's a flywheel. Thank you. Flywheel. The first of the uh, Kendrick brother movies. And so, he goes to church, and he takes an envelope, and he puts a blank piece of paper in it, and he seals up the envelope so he can put it in the offering plate so when the the ushers come past, he can be putting something in there. And people will see that he he folded up a piece of paper, and he put it in there, so everybody thinks he put a check in 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 the envelope. But his wife sitting next to him knew exactly what he did. Okay, so do you, I mean, and, and so that, that's kind of, you know, we don't pass the plate, okay? But if you're in that kind of thing, are you more focusing on the people is the idea and what they think about you when the plate comes by, or is it an act of worship between you and God? Does, does that make sense? So I just challenge you, if you go to a church like that and God hasn't encouraged you to necessarily give to that church, don't put a $20 bill in it. God doesn't need your tip. Don't put a five in it. I, I mean, that's, God doesn't need your tip. He owns everything. My father is rich in houses and lands, right? He owns it all. He doesn't need your tip. It's an act of worship between you and him. So if God lays it on your heart to give, and if it's a give to this assembly, I think that giving to a, a local church is your first and foremost place that you give. If he does that, then the offering box is back there. It's between you and God. You can put it in there. I have no idea who gives and who doesn't give. Okay. And so when Steve wasn't here, I didn't count it, okay? I made sure that those who counted put it in an envelope and they sealed it before I took it to the, to the bank. I don't want to know who gives. So when I stand here and I, I teach God's word, I don't have to look out and I don't know who gives and who doesn't give. Make sense? It's between you and the Lord. Same thing with praying then. Is the only time you pray when you come to church? Is the only time you pray is when, when you're with people? 
it ought to be a part of your life. What about fasting? What about fasting, you say? Jesus said, when you fast. Now, the, his disciples didn't fast because he was with them, but he said the time's going to come when they do. And again, in that passage, from, when I was reading, I told you when I was out in the woods and I was reading, how many times, even there, they were fasting in the early church. The bridegroom had left. They're waiting for him to come. They're seeking his wisdom and his counsel. That's when Saul and uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church at Antioch when the, when the elders were praying and fasting. It ought to be a part of what you do. It's a spiritual discipline. It helps to focus your brain, your mind upon God. We want to continue on, though, today with that second question. And the second question is, oh, we'll pass that by. Whose treasure are you seeking? Whose treasure are you seeking? Now, this is very important because, again, in three ways, God, Jesus, God in the flesh, comes and he begins to talk to us about our treasures. And the first thing is regarding your investments, okay? Where do you spend your money? Are you seeking to lay up treasures on the earth? Or are you honestly seeking to lay up treasures in heaven? Now, you've got to be careful. Again, this is that, that selfish thing here, you know. While I'm investing in heaven in order that what? I can have treasures in heaven. Now, there's the fact of that. That's a statement. That's a fact, okay? However, that's, my, my focal point shouldn't be I'm doing this in order that I have what? Treasures in heaven. I'm doing this because I want to see God's kingdom expand. We'll get to that at the very end. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, okay? But there's a fact. There's a fact that's going on there. It's an investment program. Are you looking at your investments on earth, or are you looking at your investments in heaven? So about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I think it was, I shared my, the secret to a, um, a, a fulfilling Christian life, okay? And that is redeeming that, which cannot be saved, that's time, to invest in the redemption of that which can be saved by laying all that you are on the altar that he may alter all that you are. The redemption of that which cannot be saved. Now, that's time for me, but that can apply directly to money as well. I know people who were saving up for retirement. They were planning their retirement, and then that drastic day came when what? The stark market went, and it plunged. And then all those people who had all their money, and I understand I'm putting money in my, my mutual funds right now. I felt a couple of years ago God told me it's time for me to start putting some money aside. Okay, My ultimate trust is in him, not in the stock market. Makes sense? If he wants to use mutual funds to help me in the future, that's okay. But I'm... That's not where it's all at, okay? And so if it plunged, it'd be kind of a bummer to watch it all plunge, but the reality is that it doesn't matter. It's just what? It's just money. That's exactly right. Who ultimately is going to take care of me? God. That's exactly right. Do you believe that or not? But I watched all these people who had their retirement planned. All of a sudden, the retirement was what? Unplanned. (laughs) Because the money that they were going to live off of wasn't there anymore. In a moment, in a moment, it went down the hill. Now, when that happens, it's really going to indicate something about your heart, isn't it? Is it devastation to you? Or is it just money? And then ultimately, God's the one who what? Is the provider. Again, I don't know how much you make. I don't know what you do with your money. But all I know is the illustration that Jesus gave the one day of the widow when they were standing there. And the rich men came through and they put in what? Lots of money. And then the widow came through and she put in what? Two mites. Two mites. Two cents. It wound up being all she had. Exactly right. But it was just two cents. I mean, we'll just put it as our illustration. The guy came through and he put in a million bucks. The widow came through and put in two cents. Jesus said... She gave more than they did. And the disciples were like, what? Again, this is changing the way you what? Think. They gave in a pittance. Even a million dollars was just a tip for God. But she put in everything she had. George Mueller had millions of dollars passed through his hands for the kingdom of God. Millions of dollars. Everybody know who George Mueller is? He started started um, 
orphanages, multiple orphanages. But he never asked people to give. He never put out his need. He just prayed. Because he wanted people to see that God could provide. And he had millions of dollars. Now, you understand, in his day, that's a lot of money. Pastor is him, but when he died, he, he had only hundreds of dollars. Because it was continually used for the kingdom of God. And yet, George Mueller never wanted. What are you doing with the resources that God has given to you? Which, which treasure? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we were to open up each of your checkbooks today, I know we don't really use checkbooks anymore. We do everything with bill pay and yada, yada, yada. So if we were able to go online and pull up your account and look, you get it. Or anymore, say, well, that's even the bank, man. I just use credit cards all the time. Okay, so if we went to your credit card, and we, you get it. If we were to take all the things you spend money on and we were able to put a little pie chart, a little bar chart, whichever one speaks to you the best, which area would get the greatest amount of money spent in your life? Is it God? Your toys? Your necessities? That's really where your heart is. And that's why he goes on, and then this next statement is a, 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 a transitional sentence that for many years I kind of just kind of struggled with, but then I got it. I got it. And he says, it's because he start, transitions from where your heart is, where your treasure is, there where your heart be also. And then he starts talking about this light in your eye. And this, this light in your eye. And if the, if the light is in your eye, is darkness, how great is the what? The darkness. What's he talking about? Well, where you spend your money also is going to put the twinkle in your eye. What's most important to you is what's going to cause the spark to come to your eye. And so I joke about the Steelers, and that, that light is becoming less and less and less. It's on that waning thing, you know. It really is. Uh, no, I'm not headed to the... The whole NFL is just going to me. Even the NCAA is going... It's, it's just all becoming... I mean, just all that sports, meaning NCAA is becoming professional sports, too. Anyways, it's... All that's just, it's just so waxing to me, waning, whatever the word would be, going to, on the downside. And just, it, it's ridiculous, okay? But, but in, in the day, for sure, if you start talking about the Steelers, what would happen? There's a spark that comes in my eye. Still a little bit of a spark that comes in my eye, okay? I still enjoy it, okay? But what is it that brings a spark to your eye? Is it the word of God? Is it the kingdom of God? Is it God himself? Is it Jesus? When people start talking about the Bible, is it boring to you? When they start talking doctrine, is it like, I'd rather go play the Wii? When they start talking about Jesus, what Jesus has done, is it exciting to you? Or would you rather watch, go watch the, the NFL game? What is the thing that brings the spark to your eye? Now, here's the deal. Jesus said, if that thing that brings a spark to your eye is darkness, what's darkness? Let's go back to 1 John chapter 1, right? 1 John chapter 1. God is what? Light. In him is what? No darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we what? We lie and we do not the truth. And so he then begins to go on with this concept of sin. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar and his word is not in you. Okay? These, these things are writing to you, little children, that you what? That you sin not. If anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the... The whole world. And it continues on then in chapter 2, talking about what I said earlier about if you, if you say you have fellowship with, you, with him, if you say that you know him, but you don't walk in the ways that the, 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 his commandments, then you lie and you do not the truth. But then he goes on in verse 15 and states, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, what? Can you say that again? Is what? I didn't state it. God stated, if you are infatuated with the world, if the thing which brings a light to your eye is a love for the things of the world, then you're not loving God. There is no 
middle ground. You can't say, well, I, I'm just enjoying them both. You can't do it. You can't live on the fence. I'm not saying it. God's saying it. Jesus on the earth is saying it. There is no middle ground. You can't serve two masters. Notice, look what he said. No one. How many? No one but me, right? Isn't that what it says? No one but me. No one but Bob can serve two masters. You know, because you guys can't do it, but I can serve God and mammon, materialism. That's not what Jesus said, is it? No one. No one can serve two masters. You can't do it. You're going to love the one and hate the other. You're going to serve the one and despise the other. No one can serve God and materialism, mammon. Mammon is the things that money buys. That's, in my vernacular, that's materialism. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? 2,000 years ago, Jesus is talking American lingua. Do you know why? It's never changed. It's always been the battle. Do you want the things of God or do you want the things of the world? There's no middle ground. If you, if, that's a mantra, isn't it? If, if you get nothing else from today, I hope it's that you walk away with what? There's no middle ground. Choose sides. Jesus has taken that foot and he's drawing it in the basalt of Galilee, which pictures sand, right? And he's saying, whose side are you on? It's like Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel. If Baal is God, then what? Then serve him. If Yahweh is God, then what? Serve him. But quit trying to play the game that you can worship Baal and you can worship Yahweh at the same time. You can't do it. I mean, they were cutting themselves. Blood was flowing. But Baal was still sitting on the pot. That's what it really says. Okay? You can go there in your brain. I love, I love Elijah at that moment. <laughs> he waits. He waits and he waits and waits. While these people are doing, oh, 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 stock market, take care of me. Oh, great stock market, provide for me. Oh, this, oh, this. I know, they said Baal, right? Stock market, take care of me. Okay? And finally, he just he does what? Rebuilds it. And he says, oh, God, it's time. Do what you said you would do so that everybody here knows what? There's only one true God, and you're it. Now, I know, I paraphrased it, but you get it. What did God do? He sent the thunder, the lightning, <laughs> burnt up everything. Burnt up the, even the, the altar. The water was gone. The altar, I mean, it just singed the altar. What happened to these people who were over here? Oh, mighty stock market. When the stock market failed them. And then all of a sudden they saw the power of God. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Elijah said what? Go kill the stockbrokers. <laughs> now, I'm not telling you to go kill stockbrokers, okay? But that's in a sense, then that's what he said. Go kill the prophets. Go get rid of them. You have to choose sides. What's the thing that you delight in? If it's not honestly God, this is between you and God. If it is not God, then it's darkness. Because only God is what? Light. And so if he isn't the light that's in your eye, then it's darkness. How great is the darkness? Because you're looking at something else and you don't even know it. Do you know what's worse than being blind? Say again? Well, being deaf and blind, yeah. But not knowing you're blind. How about not knowing you're blind? Thinking that you do have sight. Thinking that you do know where you're going, and you don't know where you're going. I still remember, I share this at different times, but Jerry Smith, many years ago, Psalm 16, verse 1. The fool said in his heart, what? There is no God. He said, if it's a fool who says there is no God, how, much, how greater a fool is it that knows there is one than acts like there isn't? <laughs> Chew on that one for a while. We like to look at the blind person. We like to look at the fool who says there is no God. But what about those who say there is a God, who know there's a God? And then we what? We replace him with something else. Finally, we'll see it in our anxieties. You say, well, in our anxieties? But doesn't it say in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for what? 
Nothing. That's exactly what it says. Thank you. It says, be anxious for what? Nothing. Right before it, it says, rejoice in the Lord. How many? How often? Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Let your moderation, your lifestyle, be made known unto all men. The Lord is what? Is at hand. Is near. Same concept. Repent. Change the way you think. Why? Because the kingdom of God has drawn near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Because it's near. Because the Lord is at hand. Right? Therefore, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, with... Ouch! With what? I mean, we're talking about not being anxious for anything, which means that there's something I might be anxious for, and you're telling me to be thankful for it rather than to be anxious for it, right? It's a law of replacement. Get rid of your anxiety and add what? Thanksgiving. So, be anxious for nothing but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart and your mind through... Christ Jesus. Well, it feels right with it. Therefore, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, if, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I missed something in there. Is that it? The end of it? Yeah. So, okay, think on these things. Okay, and whatsoever things you have heard from me and learned of me and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So, change the way you think. If you change the way you think, then the peace of God will what? Be flooding all over you. If you begin to have a kingdom mindset, a kingdom thought process, when you begin to think about God and his kingdom, and that just totally wraps you up, all these anxieties the world have, they're gone. They're gone. Now, I get it. Look, your mind, and I'm going to be straight, stepping back for a moment here, okay? Stepping to the side. If I got a broken arm, I can say to myself, it's not broken all I want, and it's still what? It's a broken arm. And I need to do what? I need to get it mended. Does that make sense? Okay. There are times when your brain can be broken, in a sense, and I'm not being rude, just like it, I'm not a lesser person because my, my, my arm is broken, right? That doesn't make me a lesser person if my arm breaks. It doesn't make me a lesser person if my, my, my leg breaks. When my wrist broke... I wasn't a lesser person because I had to wear a cast for a period of time. Does that make sense? If your brain is broken, someone in here may have something where they have to take some medication for. Does that make sense? Okay. Then the reality is that doesn't make you a lesser person. So there are times, so I'm stepping back, and I'm not trying to make an excuse for everybody, but I know there are times when people have anxiety disorders. Okay. I get that. As a counselor, it's very hard as I minister to somebody in the body, the soul, and the spirit, okay? Because I believe that in any one of those situations, there could be problems. So for me, it's a physical thing if I take, again, the what? Um, oh, the antihistamines, but the, you know, uh, loratadine, claritin, all that kind of stuff, the Zyrtec, and all those things, I become a, a, a crazed, wicked man. I, I, I become Jeffrey Dahmer. I want to tear people's heads off. For real. Oh, yeah, for real. I remember the day I wanted to tear Ben's head off, and it wasn't anything he did. I remember the time I almost broke my laptop over my knee, and, 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 and it was, it was the, the antihistamine. I knew it. I mean, I had just started taking Allegra, and it only took a day and a half. Was it a day and a half, Marsh? Was that about right? Maybe less than that. And I slammed it down, and I said, I can't take that one either. And I walked out, and I said, come on, guys. It's time to go to practice. <laughs> and then it, okay, so a little bitty physical pill goes in my body, and it begins to have a what? An emotional, a psychological, if you would, a social, my, my soul begins to be affected because it's a physical thing, but I become angry, okay? And that's just a psyche kind of thing. But then how I be angry and what? Sin not. So the anger itself isn't necessarily the sin, but is what I do with the anger and then becomes a what? A spiritual problem, right? So I take a little bitty pill and it has an effect upon me physically, which transforms into something that's psychological, which then can go into a spiritual thing. Now, in my vernacular, I would call that a sarcotic, uh, a sarcotic, sarcotic, psychotic, pneumatic issue. Okay? Now, you say, whoa, what's that mean? Okay, that just means that it was flesh, it went to, to my spirit, it went to my, or to my soul, it went to my spirit. Okay? And so I understand that there are 
psychosomatic illnesses. If you begin to have anxiety toward things, you're more prone to have ulcers or a heart attack. That's called a psychosomatic illness, okay? But I ch challenge you to, to begin to add the pneumos into the equation. It's a psychopneumatic problem. It's something that you get anxiety over and you begin to have sin over because now you're beginning to not trust God anymore. You get it? Okay? We're all focusing on the physical. Oh, the ulcers. Forget the ulcers. What are you doing with your relationship with God? You're saying to God, what? You can't handle this one. I know, God, you created heaven and the earth, but this one's a little bit too big for you. You need me to help you out. Really? And your anxiety, your worry, is going to help the situation? God's the one who knows the number of hairs in your head. He closed the lilies of the field. Greater than all the Solomon could do in all of his splendor and all of his wisdom. And you're worried about what you're going to wear? Women, how, I, don't answer this question. This is rhetorical. I'm just going to put on how many, how, how many pairs of shoes you got in your closet. I mean, come on, real. Okay? You got to have one that matches every color of a shirt that you're going to wear. I know. I struggled with this this morning. I, talked, I asked Marsha when I... The other outfit this morning, and, and, and I chose this tie. Now, you, you got to understand, I got like, I don't know, too many ties, okay? I'm, I'm like a woman with shoes. That's exactly right, okay? But I don't buy these things, man. You know, people give them to me. Now, I, I did buy some at Goodwill, and I paid a whole buck for each of them, okay? So, and so, I'm cheap. So, I'm frugal. <laughs> I'm frugal. I'm cheap. Okay, so, anyways, so I'm looking, I choose this tie. Well, now, all of a sudden, I got this tan shirt with these tan pants with this... This flowery tie with that's got blue and tans and everything else on it. And so I'm stuck. Because I've got these tans, which indicate I should wear brown. But then I've got this blue in it, which kind of lends toward the black. And so do I, I'm in this just anxiety moment. Do I wear my black belt or do I wear my brown belt? Should I put on my black shoes or should I put on my brown shoes? And I thought to myself, if I was a woman, I'd really be in trouble. Because now it would be black, brown, cordovan, light blue, dark blue. Is it, should I wear the aqua? I mean, you're sure there's aqua in there someplace. And it would draw this, this little teal stripe right here. It would really come out beautifully if I had teal with it. Anyways, how nuts is it, right? But we get what? We get so bent and worried about the stupidest things. In the end, what does it matter? I don't even need to have shoes to come in here. No, it'd be nice. It'd be good if I had a belt, that's for sure. Okay? But the, the fact that my whole point is, we worry so much about the what? The outside. The reactions of people, too. Very good. That's exactly right. What other people are going to think. I mean, what would people think? I went to preach down to Bonaire one day, and I looked down. Bonaire, years ago, wasn't the Section 8 housing it was. It was for senior citizen housing, right? And, I, and every Wednesday morning, I, I did a chapel down there for the, for the elderly. <laughs> and I looked down just before I got up to speak, and I had a cordovan wingtip on this side and a black wingtip on this side. And I'm like, I've been going on for hours this way. How did I do this? <laughs> it didn't bother me to that moment, but now all of a sudden my brain was what? Wrapped in my wingtips, and I've never forgotten it. <laughs> we are so worried about the outward appearance. Get rid of the outward man. Seek what? First. Seek first. Seek foremost. Seek as the very prime thing in your life, the kingdom of God in, all, in, in his righteousness. All these things will what? Be added to you. What all these things? What did he just go through? Your clothing, where you're going to live, right? All the food you're going to eat. Your basic necessities in life. God's going to what? Give it to you. Isn't that what Jesus said? Give us this day or what? Oh, man, no. Give me, Lord, enough for the next decade. That's what we think. But he said, no, give me this day my, my daily bread. He said, after all these things the Gentiles seek, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. What you do, what you get anxious over, really indicates your heart. Who are you really trusting in? Do you believe God can provide for you? Again, I, I get it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting money into an IRA right now. I've been praying about it over the years for the Lord to let me know what I'm supposed to do. I, I, don't, I don't plan on retiring. 
but I don't know what God has for me. Does that make sense? I don't I mean I know enough other people who have had physical ailments and they've had mental illnesses or whatever, and, and they've been able, had to stop doing what they were doing. Okay, I can't see myself ever wanting to stop teaching God's word. Now, bringing somebody else in, I would love to be in a position where the church doesn't have to pay me at all, but that we have enough money to pay somebody else, and that, that the Lord is providing for me away from the church. But I don't want to do that on my own. I don't want to jerry-rig that. I want it to be what God wants. And I sense that, that God is moving me in that way in some manner, so that we could be positioned, that we could be bringing in young men, that they could be more full-time, and they could be trained, and then they could be planting other churches. And if God would allow that to be, I'd be very excited about that. Okay? But God's going to have to work it. I don't want to twist it around so that I'm helping God out. God can do it on his own. Thank you very much. So as you look at whose applause you're looking for, and as you look at whose treasure are you seeking, you have to ask yourself then, what mindset do you have? Which side of the fence are you on? Are you on the world side, or are you on God's side? Who are you focusing on? Those who seek the treasure of the earth will serve materialism, will experience the balance of the reward here in the earth. Those who seek the treasures of heaven will serve God and will experience the balance of the rewards in the kingdom eternally. So in the end, what is your focus in this life? Are you self-focused or God-focused? But more importantly, not what you would say, but what would God say? What changes need to be made to your lifestyle? Will you take a moment right now to ask God to change your heart and to help you be faithful to be more kingdom-minded? Again, like last week, I want to stop for a moment. I want to pause when we're done here before I close in prayer. And I want I'm going to just challenge you to pray. And, and just ask God that. We're not going to have trip up to the altar and all that kind of stuff. And It's between you and God right now. It doesn't matter what people think. Again, you coming down the, the aisle and doing something. It doesn't matter what people see. It doesn't matter what people think. It's between you and God. Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Take some time to pray, and I'll close this in a moment.